open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of Genesis, to chapter 31. Does anyone need a Bible? Cool. But Lord, we do want to lift up as well these families who are ill today. Um, We recognize um, that there are some that just aren't doing so well, and we pray for them. You strengthen them. We pray, Lord, that you make um, this weekend a very profitable one as they Sabbath with you, Lord, and, and, and find your rest. And just pray now that you would do some amazing things in this time. God, I pray that you fill me with your Holy Spirit, that first immerse me, that I would disappear and that you would appear. And then, God, in that, I pray that you would um, just torrent out of me your life, that the word, the scripture would come alive that we would be blessed and ministered to. God, that you would speak to each one of us individually as well as corporately. What a beautiful and heavy text. And God, I just pray that we would be, that that which you wish to address to each of us will be addressed today. And that we with hearts that are open for surrender will be willing to relinquish our lives completely. You would lead us the way you intend. And God, I thank you for the privilege of this time, the honor that it is to open your word and expect you to do great things. So please have your way now. I commit this time, every second of it to you. Be glorified in it, we pray. Redeem every second in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have your final say in this. Now, in our text, this is where we left off, if you remember. We left with a cliffhanger last week where Jacob, after working for 20 years, and I remind you, he has been gone for 20 years from his house in Israel where his mother told him to flee from his brother who comforted himself by the thought of killing him. And so, but she said, you'll be gone a few days. Just be gone a few days. Wait for the word from me. I'll send word that your brother's anger has subsided. And then at that point, I'll send a letter to get you back. So Jacob takes a trip somewhere around 500 miles, somewhere around 800 kilometers to get to escape the wrath of his brother at a time when the fastest vehicle that they owned was an animal. Now, with that in mind, Jacob has been waiting, and he's been waiting, and he's been waiting. He's found himself not just one bride, but really four Two and a couple players to be named later, so to speak. And so he's got from this, he's birthed um, 12 children, 11 boys and one girl. There will be a boy that will come a little bit later, uh, the youngest of, um, obviously, of the, of the family. Uh, in this, Jacob has been waiting, and he has not had that letter from his mother. As a matter of fact, Jacob will never get that letter from his mother, nor will he ever see his mother again. So that's the end of his relationship with his mother as he knows it. But for 20 years now, he's been working 14 for the two ladies, sisters, and then another six years for um, this, this, the flock. So he has some form of livelihood. During that time, what we're going to read in this is that Jacob was a hard worker. He had some form of work ethic, or at least Jacob thought that he had a good work ethic. And, and if he's telling the truth, which is always sort of 50-50 on this, then it, it seems to me that Jacob really was a relatively very good shepherd. And on the other side of that, his boss really wasn't much of a boss. His boss was one who, according to this in those six years, changed his wages ten times. Now, Jacob, as a result of this, finally has gotten to the point where his boss is just, he's made it practically impossible to live with, 
And so what Jacob has done is just, you can see in his misery, finally God speaks, and God says, the Lord says, it's time for you to leave, it's time for you to head back home. Now, it's been 20 years, but he's had no reason to believe that his brother still doesn't want to kill him. So with that command from God, Jacob leaves. And as Jacob leaves, Jacob is leaving an angry Laban behind. That's a father-in-law who is stolen away with the girls and with the grandchildren and with the flock that is rightly his while Laban is out shearing his own sheep. So Jacob now at this particular moment has a brother who wants to kill him in front of him and he has an angry father-in-law behind him. It just is not the best season of this man's life. You can't say at this point anything good is happening circumstantially. On his route to this place, what we found is that Jacob encountered God at Bethel, where he saw the angels of God ascending and descending upon what appears to be some form of staircase. Perhaps we would best say it was an escalator, for which the Lord himself stood at the top and said, I'm the God, and I promise you this. You have my vow. I'll take care of you. I'll be with you, and I'll get you back home, bro. That was 20 years ago. God has now appeared a second time. This God that now is sending him back, and he says, now it's time to go. And one thing we learn about this family, be it Abram, his grandfather, is Abraham, or this boy now, the grandson, is that God doesn't have to fulfill his promise today. Have you noticed that? Might I just say it this way? And it's hard to hear, but it's the truth. God's never early. Now, we would love God to be early, especially because if God gives us a promise, it's usually a very good thing. I mean, the promises we embrace are usually the promises we would gladly, we would gladly have God fulfill immediately. I began a good work. I'll be faithful to complete it. We were promised that. We're his workmanship created for good work. Literally, we are his masterpiece, poema. We are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. We know that God is conforming us into his image, delivering us from the very power of sin as we live in this life. His Holy Spirit ratifying, or I should say more so, sanctifying us so that we become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the nasty person we used to be. And all of that, we would love for all of that to be fulfilled. Which one of us wouldn't have wanted to wake up today and just say, wow, I'm never going to struggle with sin again. Look at this. I've really been gloriously sanctified. But God is not early in his promises. And for some, maybe that Lord has put a promise on you that you just think, well, how long do I have to wait? It's been 20 years for God to say, I'm going to get you back home, bro. 20 years. And now it's God says, remember, I am the God of Bethel. He could have said he was the God of many things, because certainly he is the God of many things. He's the God over all. He's the God of gods, although no other thing is really a God. And yet in that, he says, look, at, I'm the one who met you 20 years ago. I'm the one who met you 20 years ago and said I'd get you back. Now it's time to bring this to pass. And there are moments where God will do this. Perhaps there were moments in your life where you were desperate for him. Things were not pretty, much like Jacob's situation here. They were awful. And in that, God met you there and said, hey, I'm going to get you through this. I'm going to get you through this. You're going to be a different person. Don't worry. And you wake up and you think, well, why is it not yet? But God knows his timetable. He knows how to make this come to pass. God is never weak, and struggle is not a word in his vocabulary, except when it comes to you and, our, and me and our obedience. And so here we are. 
As they steal away, not only does Jacob steal away with the girls and the grandchildren, his children, and the flock that's rightly his, but the beloved of the two wives, Rachel, Rachel, is now stolen away with the household gods. And though she's the favored one among Jacob's eyes, she seems to be really the one who doesn't seem to favor God as much. And so here she is. She's stolen away with the household gods. And at the last thing we read, by the way, and look at it with me, starting in verse 30, to pick up a little bit in this for context. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. Now Laban has been in hot pursuit. It's been 10 days. He is caught up with him in the mountains of Gilead. But God has met him in a dream as well. And when God met him in a dream, he said, look, it don't speak good or bad of you. But now Laban says, and again, if there's anyone that's been a deceiver so far, other than the devil, the devil himself, it's certainly this guy. Now you've surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? And it's been said last week, but let me remind you, if you have a God that can be stolen, you've got the wrong one. And it says in verse 31, Then Jacob answered, and he said to Laban, Because I was afraid. For I said, Perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let them live in the presence of our brethren. Identify what you have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Now, notice, by the way, the word him in verse 32. It's kind of a key thing here, because I want to remind you, Jacob has, at this point, he has, well, think about it, he has 11 boys. Now, of those 11 boys, how old do you think is the oldest? Now, I remind you, he was raised in the household with Jacob, and the household with these two daughters of Laban, and of, of Laban. I mean, that's an awful lot of guys that are kind of shuck and jive by nature. Now, what kind of boys do you think he's raising? Notice he doesn't even possibly assume that it could be a woman. He says, look it, I didn't steal your gods. And because I didn't steal your gods, and I remind you, the youngest of those boys, of those 11, is the only one that's been born of Rachel. So I imagine if there's anyone that would be least likely to steal those gods, it would be the youngest. And you can see him going, well, I don't have to worry about it. The other ten, uh, I'm not going to even worry about that at this point. I mean, if one of them has to die, I've got some spares. I mean, you just kind of see him never favoring those boys. And he looks at it and he says, look it, feel free to search anything. You're not going to find the gods in my tent, and if you find it in any of the others, don't let them live. That's Jacob's way of saying, I've clearly been above boards on this. So look at what we read. Now, we know from this, it tells us that, well, he was completely, at least at this, uh, this point, he was unaware in verse 32 that Rachel had even stolen the gods in the first place. And, of course, that's Jacob's favorite. And so you get that dun, 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 as all of a sudden you realize what's going to happen. In verse 33, Laban went, Laban, went into Jacob's tent. He went into Leah's tent. He went into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. And then he went out of Leah's tent and he entered now, Rachel had taken the household idols, had put them in a, sa in a cattle ca camel's saddle, and he sat on them. And Laban searched about all of the tent, but he didn't find them. And she said to her father, oh, Let it not displease my lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Now, notice here, this girl seems to have learned from dad how to do it, too how to connive, how to bend the truth, how to outright lie to get what she wants. In this case, it's to save her life. Now, I remind you, at this point, Jacob is unaware. But just so you know, 
Go to chapter 35 for a moment and verse 1. Should be easy to find if you got to the first part of that. In Genesis 35, verse 1, notice it says, Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Verse 2, And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Somewhere in between this text and chapter 35, Jacob's going to discover household gods. What's interesting is, when he discovered them, which one of you would not go ballistic? Which one of you wouldn't go potty over this situation? You're like, you almost got yourself killed! What are you doing? And you realize, in this, Jacob seems to be not drawn to Rachel because she was such a godly woman with amazing godly qualities. She was just fine. She had a pretty face. She was well, she was part of shapely. And that was enough for Jacob at that point. But in the end of it all, it is not her who God chooses to have his sacred grandson, but rather the one who all she really wanted was to be loved. Back in our text, he's looked at all of this. He's looking all around this girl's tent, which, by the way, tells me that Jacob is not living in the tent with the girls. He has his own tent, apparently away from the boys as well. And at this point now, Jacob erupts into his own argument. Verse 36, Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and he said to Laban, Now what is my trespass and what is my sin that you so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it, be- set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. For these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or by night. There I was in the day, and the drought consumed me, and the frost of night, and sleep departed from my eyes, and I had to walk up pure barefoot both ways. Thus I have been in your house these 20 years. I've served you 14 years for your daughters. I've six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages 10 times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Now, in the simplest sense, all that Jacob is saying is, Okay, so, who's the thief now? Huh? Come on, punk. You see that Jacob has stepped up to Laban and he's looking he's going, Let's just review things for a minute. For 20 years, I bought a loss. For 20 years, I worked hard here. For 20 years, I worked hard on this. And what did I get out of it all? You changed my, la- my wages 10 times. And I'm the thief. I'm the thief in this. Maybe you not, didn't say it that way, but that's how I hear it in my own head. I'd like you to consider the fact that in the end of it all, they're both thieves. And what's interesting, though, is that of all of them, the sort of paradigm or the archetype of being a deceiver certainly is Laban. If there's one person in this particular story, at least to this point, you definitely go, whatever you do, don't be this guy. Laban would be the guy you put in that place. And the reason I say that is, look at what we get in verse 43, because we get the heart of a thief, the heart of a deceiver here. And there's one word that kind of stands out, and let's see if you can get it, just in verse 43 alone. 
Laban answered, and he said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine! And all they, you know, do you get the idea where his attitude is in all this? And the reason I say that is, is that this becomes the mindset for whom we'll find every one of us fighting in and of our own flesh. Where it's all about me and everything is mine. And I'm entitled. I'm entitled. Now, if you were to go before God and tell God you're entitled, what you're entitled to, just so you know, is hell. You're entitled to hell. You're entitled to damnation. You're entitled to torture and punishment. But God doesn't want that. Because you're entitled to it because that is what you've earned. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. You were a job. You were on a job site. And what was your occupation? Sinner. That's the wages you get paid for. What's the pay you get? If you want to cash that check, it's death. That's what the Bible says. But God doesn't want that. He so loved you that he sent someone else to pay the price of that death so you would not have to. That's the whole point of the gospel. God didn't die for you. Jesus didn't die for you on the cross to send you to heaven. He died for you to be with you. Because death is simply a separation. It is a breach of relationship. Heaven's the product of that. But the bottom line is if you have no relationship with Jesus, why would he invite you into his house? It's his house, it's his place, and those that are his, his bride is the one he's preparing the house for. Those that reject him, why in the world would he want them there? Now, he wants them there to the point where they're going to permanently say no to him, and at that point, of course, there's no option left. In this text, what we see, though, is with Laban, it is just a person that it's all about him. Now, what's interesting is Jacob doesn't argue with him. He doesn't say, well, yeah, technically, these are my daughters. I won them, so to speak. I worked for them. Technically, these are my children because you didn't do anything to have these children. I worked really hard for this. Or, you know, you, uh, this was my flock. We worked out the deal. Ten different times we worked out the deal. But in and, in and of it all, Laban has no concept of letting anything go. And it's still his. And perhaps that's going to be you. I guarantee you, if that's going to be you, you're going to live a life that is really never going to bless people. Because you're going to be so busy investing in things just to see what your dividend is. But you really won't be looking to see how to serve a person for them. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children which they have born? Now therefore come, let us make a covenant. You and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So notice verse 45. Here's a quick quiz. It's a sort of short memory quiz. It says, Jacob took a stone, and he set it up as a pillar. Here's your quick question. Ready? Who set up the stone as a pillar? That really should have been a very simple question. Let me try that one more time. You all can get, you can get an A on this one. You can all pass. Here we go. Ready? Who set up the stone as a pillar? Yeah, you got that, right? Right here in text? Okay, that shouldn't be, there shouldn't be any debate over that, although there will be in a second. Verse 46, Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. So they took stones, and they made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Who commanded the stones to be gathered in a heap? Who lifted up the stone as a pillar? Yeah. Okay, some of you is, some, are you all breathing, right? Just checking, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I knew. Listen, when we think of a stone that's lifted up, I mean, living by the beach for 17, 18 years, we see, you know, you can see these little things that appear to be sort of semi-altars, quasi-altars that are a little bit sketchy. But you have to understand, when a stone like this is set up, this is not a tiny stone. This isn't the kind of thing you look at and you could step on and go, oops, I just broke it. I mean, this is the type of thing that's set up that's roughly your height. So this takes a bit of strength, and it takes an awful lot of help. 
Now, the reason is, is that this thing is supposed to be what is called, and we'll see here in a moment, a pillar of testimony or a pillar of witness. So, if you're walking by and you see something little, you don't go, oh, what's that? Because it'll be gone in a couple days. The next great flood, the next big rain, the whole thing's going to be washed away. But if you're walking by and all of a sudden you see this big stone, stone sort of standing erect, there's a part of you who goes, what, what happened? What's this? How did this happen? And the idea of that's important because that's going to become the key point of all of this in a moment. Now, according to this, the idea is they're setting up a stone that's a pillar for a testimony or a witness. And that's exactly what they're going to call it. Now, let me ask you again. Who set up the stone? Who gathered the stones to make the heap? Jacob, right. And then from that it says that they took the stones, they made a heap, and then they ate there on the heap. So there was a feast that takes place once that rock was lifted up. And this was a way where all of a sudden the deceiver is now set in boundary. That's what we get. Now, verse 47, Levan called the place Yegar Sehaduta. Can you say Yegar Sehaduta? That's the Hebrew here for simply heap of witness. Jacob called it Galiad. You say Galiad, which means heap of testimony or heap of witness. Now, what's the difference? Yegar Sehaduta is Aramaic. That's the idea. Now, Levan said, this heap is a witness. You kind of got that, right? Between you and me this day. Therefore, they also called it Galit. Again, that means heap of testimony, heap of witness. But they also called it, according to verse 49, Mitzpah. Can you say Mitzpah? Mitzpah means watch or watchtower. Because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. If you afflict my daughters or you take other wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Jacob said, I'm sorry, Laban said to Jacob, oh, oh, no, stop for a moment. By the way, have any of you seen those necklaces? They were big in the 80s. Most of you weren't even born yet. But um, they had these necklaces, and they were like sort of teen love necklaces. And they were sort of, you know, he'd break off a piece, and he'd say, you keep this piece, and I'll wear the other one. And, you know, sort of you know, cross, and it's like half a heart, and it says, God watch over between you and me while we are apart. And that just seems so warm and fuzzy, but it comes from this scripture. But the way, the tone of this is, God watch over you and me when we're apart. That's the difference here, and it's just not as warm and fuzzy anymore. It's less a plush toy and more a threat. Because the idea of it is, look it, I know you're a deceiver, and because I know you're a deceiver, we're drawing a line. You don't come past this. You don't trust me, so I'm not going to go past that. I don't trust you. You don't go past that. Now, if we actually gave ourselves those kind of things, that's kind of an unhealthy relationship, don't you think? God watch over you, because if, well, I tell you what, if you, if you know I'm not there, he's watching you. That's kind of unhealthy. But that's kind of the idea here. But the in it, but the end result of this for a moment, and we're going to even see it here with the next verse, is that what's happened, if you think about it, is someone has stood against the deceiver and said, you can't go past this line anymore. This is it. I've drawn a line. You as a deceiver, you're done. This is it. And by the way, Israel is this way. So it is, in other words, you can't come into my land. It's done. Which, by the way, I remind you, Jacob's dad got a wife from there from the, the area, from that same family. Jacob got two wives from there, but that's going to be the end of shopping in Syria for a wife because he can't go past that point. Did you get that? Now, look at the next verse because it comes profound to the, the heart of this guy, Levon. Notice Levon in verse 51. Levon said to Jacob, Here is the heap and here is the pillar which I have placed. Wait a minute. You guys, you guys have you have a problem with this. 
You even took the quiz, and you knew in the quiz, who set up the pillar? Who set up the heap? Okay, but who's making claim to it in verse 51? Yeah, now don't you find that a little strange? I mean, who's going to buy this? Wasn't everyone right there just a moment ago? Here's the pillar that I have set up. Here is the heap that I've set up. Well, I'm not really sure I get that at this point. Which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness. This pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you. And you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar for me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. Notice that's what he calls it. But remember that Abraham had two brothers one named Mountaineer and one named Snorter, Nahor, of which one settles in this area. This family is the family of Nahor, which I find very strange because though the same God that called Abraham appears to take his brother and his dad in, in Lot, who's the son of the other brother who passes away, it doesn't seem like this guy's following this living God at all. He's like the God of this. And there's something strange in both of these men. Because neither one of them says the God of me. Did you notice that? It was the God of my dad. It was the God of my granddad. But he's yet really to become my God. Now remember, Jacob said, those of you familiar with the text when we went to, when he was in Bethel, when he encountered that God the first time at the escalator. When he did, he said, all right, God, I'll make a deal with you. If you really do take care of me and you make sure I don't die or freeze or starve, and you, and you protect me so I don't die and get killed by my brother, and you get me home safely, then you can be my God. As if you were to see God go, oh, yes. I was really hoping. But he goes beyond that. And you can have a tenth of everything I have. Oh, a tenth. And, and I, just, I just see God looking at that, and I just wonder how many times we give this great like, vow to God, and God goes, you're impressed by that, aren't you? You know, while all the angels in heaven are just chuckling. They're sort of like, it's the comics watching our vows. You know what? Oh, really, God, I'll never do this again. They're like, do you really think he believes that? God's like, oh, yeah, he believes that. And so why is he not calling him my God yet? Because remember, he said, look, God, if you do all of this, then that tends to be a bit of Jacob's life. Now, let me ask you something. Is that you? Are you still waiting for God to do something in your life so that maybe you'll actually give him everything? Or 10%? Take all, take 10% of me. I surrender a tithe. I mean, really? You really? That just doesn't, doesn't roll off my tongue like it should, I think. But, I, but you know, I'm, I wonder if maybe, even if we're singing otherwise, are, are we still living it? Because you're saying, you know what, God, you're right. I mean, you've proven yourself faithful in this area, so you can have my finances. I mean, after all, um, I'm not doing real well anyway, so there you go. But don't touch my romantic life. That's different. All right, God, you've been really good with my living situation. Thank you for that. I'm going to trust you now that I'm in a contract. I'm going to trust you. <laughs> but don't touch my dreams and aspirations, my ambitions. Or God, you know what? You've done really good with wiping out my past and my sin. You can be the God for that, but don't you dare touch my identity. Or God, well, 
all right, God, you've been really good at forgiveness. So I'm going to, and, and you know what? I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you more than a tenth. I'm going to give you a seventh. I'm going to give you an hour on Sunday. Or I go to that Calvary, it's two hours on Sunday. Wow. You know, I mean, wow. And isn't that like a seventh? And, 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 but, but God, you know what? Hey, I'm going I'm to give you that, but don't you dare. Don't you mess with, and then what do you put there? Don't touch that area. Don't, don't mess with that. And, and I, just, I just think, oh, what, what does God have yet to do to prove to me that, that he really is worthy of everything? And the problem is, is that if we're good enough at deceiving everybody else, actually, we're really, we're so good, we can deceive ourselves as to thinking we've given God everything. And then what happens? Well, look at Jacob says, look at you, you'll, you'll be my God. I, I, I mean, I'll, I promised you that, but you're going to have to take some steps first. And we wonder why it is that the cross had to come before we said yes. Chief is a witness. Verse 30, 54, so Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain, and he called his brethren to eat bread, and they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. Early in the morning, Levon arose, and he kissed his sons and his daughters, and he blessed them. Then Levon departed and returned to his place. Notice he kissed his sons, his daughters, and went to his place. So what do we say was Laban claimed? He claimed children. He claimed his place. This is my place. This is my stuff. These are my peeps. What did Jacob claim? Well, you have to go to the next chapter, verse 1, just to see. What did Jacob make claim to, according to Scripture? What was his? It says, Jacob went on his way. That's the difference. On one side, you have a man, and everything that's tangible and touchable is going to be his. It's my, 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 my. It's my peeps. It's my stuff. It's my car. Don't touch it. It's my collection. It's my house. What do you have? And at that moment, you could see someone shrivel up and go, oh. I have a way. That's what I have. This is my way. Well, what way is that? It's the way of following the living God. That's the way. See, the thing is, is the way doesn't mean much to a person who's really happy to stay where they are until they realize that all that they have isn't going to benefit them anywhere else. Then why would you want to... I mean, if you became super, super wealthy in a Monopoly game, why would you ever want to stop playing? Because you can't spend it anywhere else. If you were super, super... Think about it. If you were super, super popular at some hotel you were staying at, you would never want to check out. But you realize sooner or later, someone's going to be like, this is really going to cost you a lot because sooner you're not supposed to live here. This is supposed to be temporary. And then God gave us this flesh. And he said, this world, your hotel, you may not know when you're checking out, but you are checking out. And every time we see someone else go the way of the earth, we hear ding, and we know that's someone else checking out. And there's a part of us that gets a little bit uncomfortable because, you know, sooner or later, that ding is going to be ours. And there are those, the enemy's done a really good job of saying, but you need to really be large and in charge here at the hotel. And you're thinking, yeah, but what's home? If that's all you have, you don't have a way. You'll just be wanting busy trying to, to, not to get away at all. 
We, on the other hand, it's like, I can't wait to check out. Now, I'm not going to jump in front of a bus to do so. I know that as long as I'm going to be here, God's got purpose. But I tell you what, when I'm done with this and I cash in this jersey and I lay and I stand before the living God, I am ready to go home because I know that the home that is awaiting me is where I really get to live large and it's a place I'll never want to leave from and I'll never have to. And I get to dwell in the, in the presence of my perfect loving God who loved me when I was everything wrong before he made me everything right in his presence. Am I more busy trying to make sure that you know my stuff, my vibe, my personality, you know, my fangs? Or am I busy letting you know my way? Because my way is truthful. Because in the end of it all, people get really tired of not going anywhere. And they're like, so part of being on the way is that we change. Things change. And as we grow in Christ, it's me too, as your pastor, it's me too to be able to say, you can watch and see, you should be able to see me change. Next year, by this point, you should see me more in love with this God, more like him, more passionate about his word, and more expectant, not the opposite. And that takes me to our point here in this. Jacob is the grandson of our man who starts this whole family, right? That's Abraham. Those of you who have been around, do you remember Abraham was known for building something? What was he known for building? Does anyone remember? Excellent. Altars. How many of those did he build? Do you remember? Excellent. Go ahead and say, yeah, four. He built four altars. Now, I find that interesting. Altar is a place of sacrifice where you encounter God. That's the point of it. And we talked as we walked through it about the sort of four basic kind of genres of gods that people worship. You know, provision, production, you know, protection, and so forth. So we, 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 we walked through that. But then we went from Jacob to, I'm sorry, we went from Abraham to his son. Now, does anyone know what his son was famous for making or finding or digging? That's his son. Wells. Do you know how many wells Isaac dug or his people dug? Four. I find that interesting. Four wells. See, it was interesting. We went from the altar to the well um, <coughs> for what it's worth. But it goes beyond that. And, and by the way, for what it's worth, he, dig, he digs his four wells. Now the question is, well, what about his son, Jacob? What is Jacob known for? I'm going to give you four verses and you tell me. Ready? Write these down and you tell me what it is. First one, 28.18. The second one, 31.45. The third one, 35.14. The fourth one, 3520. Okay. Go to it. You tell me. Excellent. Yes. Pillars. The question is, how many pillars did Jacob set up? Four. Don't you find that interesting? We went from the we went from the altar to the well. The pillar. Now, this was these pillars were called pillars of, do you remember? Pillars of witness, pillars of testimony. That's interesting because the next time you see someone building, well, not be Moses. Do you ever think Moses built anything? I mean, there's a couple of things. He'll set up a couple altars and so forth. But actually, if you think about it, if he really, he's more quick to tear something down. That's Egypt, but that's another story. But who gets the people into the promised land? Joshua. And it's interesting because what Joshua will set up will be four sets of memorial stones. 
I mean, there's five, if you actually want to include the fact that he took some stones out of the Jordan, and he took some other stones and put them in the Jordan, but they're really not much of a testimony unless you're actually deep sea diving in the Jordan. So really, you have four sets of piles of memorial stones. And then the next thing we're going to see in the history of Israel is going to be the season of Judges, which is, by the way, one of the darkest times in all of Israel's history. But I've got to tell you, as I'm, as I'm walking through this in my own head, because I'm looking at this and saying, God, help me to understand this better. He started to show me something that really, really kind of took me to task. And I realized this is really the problem. Follow me. It starts at an altar, a place of sacrifice, where manna came from. And from that comes a well. And what's a well? It's a place where a digging produces living water. We discover living water, that which will keep us alive, refresh us, cause us to thrive. And they go from that to a pillar of testimony. And that sounds so good, doesn't it? And then from that to memorial stones. No. This could be the danger if we're not careful. If we're a Christian, if you're not, let me make that clear. We all start out sinners. We all deserve hell. We deserve eternal damnation. But God so loved you and me. He sent Jesus, his only begotten son, to die on the cross for us so that that price, that penalty could be paid. And he rose again to offer us brand new life, life without that grave, a new life. If you haven't accepted, I'm going to give you a chance here in a moment to say yes. What is that? What is the cross? It's the altar. It's the place of perfect sacrifice where we first encounter God, isn't it? And so I say, yes, God, oh, yes, please. Be the God that meets me where it's your sacrifice, not mine, but yours, Lord. I can be yours. And from that, I go, all right, God, now what? Now I'm a brand new, I'm a, I was a 19-year-old sinner. I'm a baby. I'm an infant Christian. What happens now? Peter tells me that as a newborn babe in Christ, I'm to desire the pure milk of the word that I would grow thereby. And I realize that there are two things that start to work simultaneously in my life. The power of God's Holy Spirit. Because according to Ephesians 1, it tells me, having believed, I was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise to guarantee my inheritance. And so here I am in a situation where now God's Holy Spirit is transforming me from the inside out, and His Word is feeding me from the outside in. And all of a sudden, something really cool is happening. This synergy is happening inside of me, transforming my priorities, my mindset, my, my worldview. Everything changes. My definitions, everything changes. You become more important. I become less important. God becomes everything. Everything changes. And I've found the living well. And here I am, I've gone from that place of sacrifice, and I say, God, thank you for paying for my sins. Thank you for the presence that you've put inside of me and your spirit. Thank you so much, God, for your word and how alive it's become in me. And I, and I look at that, and then I'm like, okay, so what happens? God sets me up. And as he sets me up, I become a pillar of testimony. And I see that throughout Scripture, where all of a sudden we'll see that when Paul goes and he speaks, and he says, well, when James and others who seem to be pillars, or where God says, look, at if you actually dwell, I will make you a pillar in my dwelling place. And I see this idea of this immovable thing that when other people look and go, look at that thing set up, propped up, established, and people go, look at that immovable thing. That thing's solid. If I run an auto into that thing, it's going to crash. The stone's not going to move. And boy, the world really needs to see those pillars, doesn't it? I mean, the world needs to see those pillars where something is established, not so busy and flim-flammy that they don't even know what they believe anymore. And all of a sudden, everything's Christian as long as it's popular. Here's the problem. If we just go to that and we're more busy on being a rock and we're less interested in the well and we're less interested in the altar, the only place left for us to become is a memorial stone. 
And under those memorial stones were the stones of compromise. It started with the stones of a, of a miracle when God opened up the Jordan so they could get into the promised land. And from that, there was a man named Achan, Achan, lived up to his name because he really was Achan. They stoned him and buried him in those stones. And so, because he was the one who brought compromise for them to lose in a tiny little place called Ai. And from that, we see, we went from this place where everything was established on a miracle to a person who had compromised buried under it to dead kings, people who had made their living being comfortable. And so comfortable, now they had been taken down. And I realized, God, is my life at this point one of these things? Is it a movement? Is it a monument? Or is it a memorial? Because every one of us that have walked with Christ your walk is going to be one of those two things. If it's in movement, what that means is, my, I'm looking, I still look at the future expecting God to do something. I'm hopeful and I'm expectant. Not just he'll be done a good work, he'll complete it all. I'm just going to live here and just wait for my days to get through. And I'll just know when I'm done, God can take me home. Or am I still expecting God to do great things? Am I still expecting him to save? Is his gospel still the power of salvation? Is his Holy Spirit still the one who convicts? Is this word still active and alive, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow and soul and spirit, discerning the intent and thoughts of our heart? Does it still never return empty? Do I still believe those things? Do I still walk into a situation and go, you know, if I could get you to Jesus, he could fix you? Or do I think I need to add some other form of expertise that the world has offered versus me going, well, I just have a simple faith, but that's always worked up to this point. Is, am I still looking at the future? Because if it is, there's probably a movement happening in me. If all I'm looking at is today, check me out who I am today. You know what? I'm all right. I'm good enough. You know? I mean, I'm not who I used to be. I'm not a drunkard anymore. I'm not this thing. I'm not a violent guy like I used to be. Praise God for that. Well, now I'm just kind of a monument. You know, I'm kind of solid. You know, you can kind of look and people go, well, well look at your kind of person we should try to look up to. God is not interested in that. But the problem is, Monuments so quickly become memorials because they stop moving. They stop being, stop being on the way. And he said, this is good enough. Or worse yet, are you in that place where you can tell me about the greatness of God that everything has its past tense to? I remember when God did this. I remember someone dropping their daughter in my lap who was dying, who had a leg completely infested with gangrene and having her walk up the next day and jump up and down completely healed. I remember a girl that was dying from being delivered, from, you know, from, from trying to get out of heroin and watching her body just errat in front of us as, and then watching her be completely delivered and brought into vibrance again and life in front of us. I mean, I could tell you about those moments, but what about now? What about next week? Because every one of us have had times where we look back, and to be honest, memorial stones are okay and monuments are good in the past. Because they remind us of God's faithfulness. They're just no place to look. They're just a place to refer to. But you know what? I remember when God did that. I remember when God took our daughter and raised her. I remember when God took our other daughter and healed her. I remember when God took my wife and healed her. And I think, I, I know that that's the case. Would I expect that in the future? I would expect. And if God does otherwise, I know he'll carry me nonetheless. Because he's faithful. Let me ask you something, Christian. Is your Christianity today, is it a movement? Is it a monument? Or is it a memorial? 
when the Lord speaks to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, and we're bringing this around to closing prayer, he says, you know the truth. Oh, you can smell a phony like this. You can discern those who say that they're apostles or they're teachers or prophets. And oh, and you can tell, and you can tell that they're not. You can tell that they're false. The problem is that you don't know what they are. The problem is it's all about and that's how a movement becomes a mirage. In the simplest terms, is my walk with Christ becomes more about an it than a him. It's just that simple. And it can be anything. It could be things that are actually good, they're just no replacement. That it can be, you know what, I belong to Calvary Chapel, or I just read the Bible, but it's the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible, it's just the Bible. Or it could be what day I worship on or what day I don't worship on. Or it could be the things that are my convictions. Or it could be my particular clothes, my, you know, my, my particular stance. This is the camp I stay in. Christianity fits within this whole room, but this is it. These four squares. And if you're not in these four squares, I'm not even sure you're saved, you know. And this is it. And all of a sudden it becomes about an it. Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit, who was a he, can become an it in that circle. Because now I'm too busy about it. Getting it so I can have its power. So I can, instead of actually saying, God, I want to know you. And I realized the difference, the, the route that Jacob is on is going back to discover this God again. And because he's getting a lot of its out of it. Now notice the difference between Laban. Laban, even his people were its. But my daughter, my kids, my stuff, my house. Jacob's like, I'm, I'm just in route. To what? I'm not really sure, but I think I'm going to discover God again. I just want to ask, is, is, is your walk simple or is it complicated? Because I notice in God's presence, it just tends to be more simple. The complication is all the it of it all. What about you? So I just want to pray. And, and I got to tell you, I, I love stuff like this, where I get into it and I go, okay, God, look at the altars and where, where Abraham encountered you at every one of them. And those altars were like, this was the place where God did something radical. And Abraham had to go back to one of them because he realized, wow, you are a God who protects me. Thank you. Now, Jacob will, in the midst of this, he will build an altar. Because if we're really going to be pillars, there needs to be altars in our lives. An altar where we can go back to this place where God continually touches his king and makes us a new creation. Jacob prays. As I look at these pillars, the last pillar, by the way, well, the last pillar was Lot's wife. Does that tell you something? The next pillar, on the other hand, will be a fire. Which, wh which route do you want to go? Which direction? Lot's wife was the one who was looking back at all the stuff, the it, she would lose. The pillar of fire is what led us out of the wilderness and the promised land. And I want to follow a treasure not something just so esoteric that I can make it up as I go along and other people would have taught me, but a heart that's quick to surrender, that's quick to abandon anything other than him. All right, Lord, reveal yourself in this word. So when I read this, it isn't an it. This book is just a place where I discover you. When I seek the power of your Holy Spirit, it's so that I would be more intimate with you and that everything you would do would be using me to make other people more intimate with you. Fellowship would not be my it but rather fellowship would be a place where we could develop real healthy relationships and encourage each other.
probably makes the main thing the main thing. It put Jesus at the center. And everything became about him. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for your word. And God, I just pray right now for those of us who our altars are a bit messed up. Somehow we're in the place now where we're looking at our sacrifices instead of yours. Would you change that? Would you remind us, God, that we don't even have the strength to do anything of value unless you do it through us. And it is you who works within us to will to do and to do for you in good pleasure. So God, I, I just pray, please, that you restore our right altars so that we can rem be reminded daily, we can live in that place where what we're seeking is your presence and to develop that relationship. We recognize God in life. There is no relationship we could have with anyone that is going to thrive in any way if we don't spend any time with them. And if all we're busy doing is fighting and struggling against them, that's no relationship either, even if we do spend time. Lord, I just pray for everyone, myself included. God, please do not let us be people, please, who are trying to say we have a good relationship with you without actually even investing in the relationship at all. And God, I pray that that altar, that place where we could always be reminded, God, that it's the cross and it's the cross and it's the cross. It's the cross that you paid for us. It's the cross where our old man was laid to rest and it's where that person was buried and that the new life came at your resurrection. And, and God, that we're to carry our own cross now and it'd be one that is of, of surrender. Recognizing there will be mockery and disdain as a result, but God, it's still worth every bit of it in this hotel room that we have yet to check out of. So God, I, I just pray. And I pray, Lord, for those who we've forgotten that it's your Holy Spirit that needs to do the work and not us. And God, that we've been trying to do it in our strength. And Lord, perhaps we've seen abuses on either side where there's a complete denial of any worth of your spirit or where it's become license for lunacy. But God, we're praying for the very thing that you desire out of your Holy Spirit to be the very catalyst of intimacy between us and you. And in that, Lord, we just pray right now, God, that we would surrender ourselves and say, Lord, whatever you want your Holy Spirit to do in and through and to us, God, do it, please. But use your word, use your fellowship, Lord, use your people, but God, just make us absolutely yours. And Lord, may we live in that place where immersed in your Holy Spirit, we would find ourselves just dwelling in the flow of your living water. Refreshed, empowered, thriving. And in that, God, I pray that you would establish us. Establish a life that is uncompromising, that is unattracted to the things that are our own pitfalls and destruction. God, but please make us people who are so passionately in love with you. All the things that would try to bid and competition would seem as ugly as they really are. And in that, make us a standard. But God, make us a standard in our walk with you and not just in our, not just that we're, we're someone and we're refusing to move from this spot. God, we recognize that we are living stones make us living stones that walk in your way. And God, in that, may there be a legacy and not just a memorial. May there be fruit, not just fountains of life. 
as I think of places that we had walked that were once these great big stones. God, I beg you for the soul of this country where big stone buildings were once places where people lifted their voice and praised to you. And now so many of them are just empty stone monuments. Oddly enough, with dead people buried all around it and sometimes in it. And we recognize, God, sometimes that's a really powerful emblem of what really is happening among your people. It's just a place full of dead people. And these, these big buildings have now become discotheques and flats where people just go and try to make themselves just live their life. And I think, God, that's much of what could happen in our own walks if we're not careful. Where our lives just become something glitz and glam and shallow. A place where we're so busy building our own thing here in our hotel room that we forget about the place that we really live. The place where our, our citizenship really comes from. And so God, I just pray for every believer here, myself included, that they would be surrendered. That they would be in a place. And God, that you make a movement happen in each of us. Make us move. And God, within the sound of this voice, you know right now, if there be any who have not accepted the gift of your son, Jesus the Christ. And as they stand at this moment in their guilty state, and you so hungrily desire to deliver them from that state, the only thing left is their choice to say yes to the gift you gave them of your son for Christ. And if today you would like to confess Jesus as your Lord and let God wash you clean from all of your filth and, and guilt, I'm going to pray a simple prayer, and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it, if you agree, I ask you to say a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, let those words be my words. I agree, so be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I confess to you, I am a sinner. And I confess to you that that sin makes me guilty before you. And you as a righteous judge punish guilt. But I believe you so loved me that you sent your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross on my behalf and raise again so that all of my guilt could be paid for and that I could be offered the new life of your son. His innocence for my guilt, his life for my death. His, his sonship. You can say a prayer of love gladly receiving this gift. If you're willing to wash me clean, then please do. If you're willing to make me innocent, then please do. If you're willing to adopt me as your own, then please do. Jesus, if you are really willing to take me as your love, then please do. As I gladly give myself to you, confessing Jesus as my ransom, my Savior, but as a risen and resurrected King, I confess him as my Lord. So have me now. Let this be now the beginning of this great adventure you call me on to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I want to thank you for the privilege it is to open the word with you, for the honor that it is to be your pastor. Let me just pray one more prayer, and then we'll send you out of here. God, I just pray right now, as we have now spent our time in the locker room and we prepare to head out into the field, God, I pray now that you would just give us all of your power to do what you've called us to. May we be completely and absolutely receptive and Lord, have your way, we pray. Do something glorious 
Even this week, God, I pray, lead us and guide us. And may we be people, God, I just pray even now, people of the altar, people of the well. And God, in that, make us the pillars you design us to be. But Lord, make us the movement you intend as we commit ourselves to you. Lord, now have your way. Bless them, bless them, bless them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, son.